Hello, hello, this is Dale Moano. I am excited to be here for Persevere to Excel podcast. In this podcast, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking about really the focus of this whole comparison that happens a lot in, in, in culture, uh, specifically regarding how people look at certain ethnic groups that have migrated to a new country and perhaps the success they might have in comparison to other underrepresentative or marginalized groups within a country already and the difficulty and challenges they might have. And this is something that I'd, I'd like to talk about because my team and I, we're having a discussion around this. And one of the things that I realized, even for me personally, as a former immigrant who immigrated here 22 years ago, next week, I had tendency of making those comparisons. So that's what we're going to talk about in our podcast today. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am pumped. Very excited to be here with you all. We've entered the second month of the year, February, which is also African American month. I do a lot of consultancy work with businesses, nonprofits, school districts, city official. And something happened last year during this time. I was working with a company out of Boston and that company had they it's a for-profit company and they have company They have offices all over the country and I was working with a committee. So during this time, I've been working with the committee for about five months. And one of the things that the organization did, they wanted to make sure that they were being proactive on um, different holidays and acknowledgement of different culture, ethnicity. And part of this committee, it was a diversity and equity and inclusion committee. And this organization was indeed very, very diverse. It had a representation of folks from all different walks of life. And one of the things that that happened working with the group that's so diverse is that there was a lot of learning opportunity for everybody. Um, we had folks that were African-American, folks that migrated here from the Pacific Islands, folks that were from just different culture, different sexual orientation, age group, gender. And they also had a lot of diversity in terms of roles within the organization. So we had folks that worked for the main office, part of the executive team. We had folks that were more on the front line. So super, super diverse group. And I spent a lot of time getting to know um, the individual that made up this group. The other thing about this group was Even though they worked for this organization, company, a lot of them didn't have cross-relational ship on a daily basis. So some of them, this was the first time they've actually gotten to know each other. And prior to this committee work, the organization always made sure that they were in the forefront of acknowledging the different representation that are internally. So during leading to African American Month, Somebody that was part of the team asked a question regarding, hey, you know, with the with the DEI committee, we've been pushing a lot of information out. 
and educating our workforce, we need to have something out for Black History Month. And here is my ideas and thoughts of what I put together. And, you know, their ideas were awesome. It was great. But one of the things that I realized was how did the group members that were African-American, what was their affiliation to February being an African, National African-American Month? And when I asked that question to the group, it was very fascinating and very interesting. So the group members that were African-American started to reflect on what does February mean to them. And one of the things that was interesting was this one gentleman that we were working with, when it came to his churn, he's African-American, he said, I don't celebrate February as Black History Month. So I, you know, I'm on the other side of the Zoom, so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm interested to hear him elaborate. Um, his point of view and perspective. And he said, for me, black history is every day. And it felt so powerful for me to hear that as he described what Black History Month was for him personally. So then I asked the individual who was gauging the group around putting something together for an African-American month, I asked him, in the past, based on the work that you all do, have you consulted and engaged with African-Americans that are part of the representation of your organization to ask them how would they like to contribute to African-American month or what is their stent in terms of African-American month? So then it could be more organic based on the representation of the employees as well. And one of the things the individual says like, well, you know, we, we don't really do that. And, you know, we're short on time now. And we wanted to make sure that we had something out. And part of the DEI work we were doing, it became like a really awesome opportunity as we thought about the model moving forward for this organization where they brought together a very diverse group of employees, what would it look like with the different representation this organization have, meaning the different diversities that are part of their organization, for them to contribute in how the diversity that lies within the organization are celebrated, but also opportunity to educate the greater organization over time and being more intentional around that and not just waiting for specific months or specific issues that are happening or timeline in order to elevate that particular focus. I wanted to open up with that story because as we are, our society is becoming more and more open to embrace the idea of the different diversity that individuals bring with them that makes them unique. And it doesn't necessarily mean everybody's on board, by the way, because there, there is friction of people that are going against those ideas and thoughts because um, it challenges their own personal perspective, but it also challenges their morals of what they think it's right and what is not wrong, what is not right. So I just wanted to emphasize on that. It doesn't mean like America has become this utopia space where everybody's open for diversity. That's not the case. 
one of the things that's happened is people are more, those who are underrepresented or marginalized, they have a stronger voice and platform to be able to advocate for themselves. And a lot of them don't want to take one for the team anymore, where in the past, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity for people to be able to elevate their voice at the level that we're seeing now. So in my podcast today, I wanted to focus on this whole notion of comparison, right? When we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, ethnicity, racial division, right? When we talk about the different methodology that people use to come to America or to move from one place to another, there's always this sense of comparison. And the comparison is actually very, very detrimental. The reason why is the comparison, most of the time, it's done in a vacuum. So folks have identified areas where they see contrary to a particular issue that's happening, and they want to impose the same experience to a particular group that might be advocating or asking for certain intention or certain changes. And then they try to create the same structure in order to measure the impact or the lack of impact that particular group is having. A couple of years ago, I was asked to meet with a superintendent of a school They were interested in having me consult with them around some school district-wide culture issues that they were facing. The superintendent who scheduled the meeting with me was an African-American person. His administrators who oversaw the individual schools were Caucasian. They were white. Going into this meeting, I sent an email to the superintendent. I said, is there anything that you want me to prepare as part of this meeting? The superintendent said, oh, no, this is going to be more of an introduction conversation in order for us to get to know each other and see the work that you're doing and how we can collaborate Um, I've looked at your website, I've read about, you know, I read about your bio, I'm really interested in having you come and talk to us. So leading to that meeting, I didn't really, I was prepared, but I didn't really put anything together substantial. I, I, I was just a discovery conversation. So I showed up at the meeting, I sit down, the superintendent and his administrators are also there. And the first question that the superintendent asked me is, hey, Dale, I read your bio. I'm actually interested in how do you define your identity today on who you are? I was like, oh, that, that's an interesting question. And then he said, you are originally from the Congo, right? I said, yes, you are correct. I am originally from the Congo in Africa. And then he said, well, 
Do you identify yourself as an African American from America? Or do you identify yourself as a Congolese from Africa? And I know you've been in America for a substantial amount of time. I'm, I'm very curious. How do you identify yourself, right? Your identity today. And when he asked me that question, I didn't really think too much about it right away. So in my head, I was ready to answer it. I said, I identify myself as both. And when I said both, I looked at his body language. He was a little bit, he looked a little confused. And it looked like, it seemed like my answer wasn't good enough. It wasn't the answer that he was looking for. It seemed like he was looking for me to pick a side. And then I gave a couple of reasons why. And he kind of cut me as I was giving the description. He was like, well, that's interesting. I used to be a school principal in this, in this region or that region. And I had a set of students that, were, that migrated to America originally from Somalia. And these students confronted me several times. I used to refer to them as African-American. And they were so offended. They said, hey, we are not African-American. We are Somalian-African. We are from Africa. So those students wanted to make sure that they made a clear distinction that they were not African-Americans from America that they were Somalian African and he said that really caught him off guard and he realized that he had a lot of learning to do so I'm really interested that you identify yourself as both kind of went back and forth with him a little bit and then we went on to talk about other things that I was actually there for On my way home after the meeting, I started to reflect on that. And I asked myself, why did it seem as if this superintendent was trying to put me in a box? In a box for me to either pick one or another. I've been living in America for 21 years. Next week is going to be 22 years. So I have officially lived in America longer than I have lived in the Congo. And at the time that I was meeting with the superintendent, I believe I was, I've lived in America for more than 15, 14 years at the time. So I was very struck by that notion. And I started to reflect on why do I identify myself as both? I grew up in a very strong traditional culture. And there were some strong principles that were instilled in me that shaped who I was when I was younger. And some of those same principles has continued to shape who I am today. 
which those principles came from traditional practices that came out of my family growing up in the Congo. But when I moved to America, the experiences that I've had in America has contributed tremendously to who I am today because of those experiences shaped me as I was developing. And I've had a lot of influence in different things that I've done that has contributed to how I see myself and also how I see the world around me. So early on, moving to America in a predominantly white state, white community, I had a lot of friends that were from all over the world in my ESOL classes. So that's English learning school where kids are from all over different places. They're also learning English. But the immediate community that came alongside my family, they were from all over, they were predominantly from, you know, Americans that lived here for a really long time and they were predominantly white. And their influences early on also made an impact as we were acclimating to our experiences in America. And then I ended up joining an organization that did performing arts in inner city America all over. And I joined that organization really early on. I was 11 years old. And part of that organization, you would go to different communities and you do street evangelism through performing arts. For two weeks, three weeks, I joined that organization two and a half years after moving to America. And those experiences early on also shaped a lot of my perspective and point of views of the American experience. And more importantly, most of the communities that we engage with in that program were also underserved and marginalized communities in different places throughout the Midwest, throughout the Northeast of America. Some of the earlier influences for me was definitely music and culture. Music and culture was a big part of it because the culture is visceral, right? If you're in the setting, how people engage, interact like that, that is a big part of that, right? And who you engage with, there's influences there. And I gravitated towards certain things that were very similar to things I, I was interested in prior to moving to America, for example, sports. So I grew up playing soccer in the Congo. In America, I I ended up joining a soccer team early on, so I played soccer. I loved music and dance. In, in the Congo, music and dance is such a big part. Big, big part of the Congolese culture, from rumba music, and the dancing is just it's just amazing. That's just part that's part of the culture there. So when I moved to the States, I was super interested to learn also of what type of music and dance America had to offer. So during the time that we moved to America, boy band music was really big, Bastard Boys, In Sync, O Town, B2K. Uh, Michael Jackson's music was still popular at the time. And then I came across hip-hop music and hip-hop dance. Early on, I think there was a group that came in at the school and did an assembly and people were performing. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. And, and then when I joined that program two, and a year, two years after moving to the States, they use a lot of performing arts 
choreography, kind of pop dance. But then the community that I would go to serve, they had their own authentic way of socializing through music and dance. And that's really where I started to learn hip hop through the through those communities. So in Chicago, I learned footwork. In Philadelphia, I learned SpongeBob and dancing to party music, which is fast, fast beat, techno beat, beat remix of different music, popular music that was out there. So those early experiences started to shape who I was and who I was becoming in regarding to activities, culture. And then the other piece is also, you know, how you dress, right? Like, so at the time when we first moved, you know, hip hop, style of dressing was becoming more and more popular. So South Pole shirts, FUBU shirts, uh, the clothes were much, much baggier at the time. So that's also how I dressed. And uh, even hairstyle, you know, people had cornrows and braids. Um, so those were a lot of the influence early on. And then the other influences also were after about two and a half years of being in the States, I ended up transferring from a public school to a private school. And when I moved to a private school, there was less diversity when it came to ethnicity and racial. And I was in a space where there was predominantly white kids. So a lot of the friends that I developed that were white, I was also influenced a lot by some of their experiences and um, some of their nuances. And then I would also say, like, engagement that I had and conversations that I had with their parents and their family, like, when I, if I went over for dinner or if they drove me home or like all of that played a, such a, a critical role in how I was acclimating, but also I was kind of writing new identity of who I was. But in terms of the Congolese tradition and culture that came through my family, through my mom, that was very, very strong. Respect, obedience, accountability, responsibility, the team mentality, the family kind of alliance mentality. All of those principles were so critical to who I was. I had tremendous amount of respect for my mother and she was the patriarch of my family. So she kind of guided everything we did. So I never wanted to cross the line. Yes, I was a kid. I made mistakes all the time, but those, those key things. Right. And then the other piece was also our faith. We, you know, we believe, we believe in God and we went to church. And so like those principles were core to us and that was infused in me as, as a person. As time progressed, I started to realize certain things that I needed to hold on to that were part of traditional culture of where I came from that I didn't want to compromise. So part of that was the language. So growing up, I, sp I spoke Swahili, Lingala, French. Mostly at home, we spoke Lingala and Swahili with my mom because that's the language that she maintained. And then the food, too. Most of the food that she cooked were traditionally Congolese food from rice and beans, um, cassava leaf, which is almost like a spinach kind of thing. She made fufu, which is like a hard mashed potato that you eat with your hands and you dip it on the sauce. So 
So those traditions were always infused. And I would say over time, the longer I was here in the States, there was always this equal balance of new traditions that were being infused in me based on my identity, based on my environment, versus what I brought with me as a as an immigrant who came out of the Congo. But some of those traditions were still alive because my mom and my family maintained those. So one of the things that I wanted to touch on based on that conversation that I had with the superintendent that I also realize happens very often is this whole comparison, right? In, in, in America, the, the black melanated community is very, very diverse. There's black skinned people that are all over the world not just in Africa. There's black-skinned people in Australia, black-skinned people in Middle East, black-skinned people in South America. But there's a sense that there's always this comparison around different ethnic group and underserved population in America. And one of the reasons that happens often is because some people look at issues from their lens. So they look out and they say, wow, that family that came from this place, they, were, they came here, they had nothing, and they were struggling, and look at all the progress that they've made. And sometimes people make comparison with different ethnic groups. They say, oh, look at that ethnic group and look at what they've been able to do. You know, they don't complain about this. They don't complain about that. Why doesn't this group do that, right? And a lot of times that comparison is actually being made directly to African-Americans, right? And people say, oh, African-American people are always complaining about this, this, this. They always want a helping hand. They never... They never get off their, their feet and go do this and go do that, right? People, those, those are the type of narrative that you hear so much, that comparison. But one of the things that I wanted to highlight in this podcast is the, is this, the fact that those who live here in America, those who've had lineage here in America, that are African-American or any other group that people want to make comparison to, their experience or their experiences are only based on what they know here. There's no other comparison because their experiences is only grounded based on what they have gone through, what they're experiencing in their ecosystem. So it's really hard and difficult to make that comparison on someone else who's coming from a different country and they moved here and they happen to have more success and you're like, oh, well, look at that. You know, they came from, from nothing and they've been able to succeed and why can't you do that also, right? So, so th- that's what a lot of people go to. And then sometimes people make comparison between one group to another. So one thing I wanted to highlight in this podcast is the fact that everybody has their own journey. But the thing that's really unique is that those who 
leave their country to go to another country, they are the outliers. They are not the typical folks. And that is also influenced by even if they have the resources or they don't have the resources, so there's different ways that people come to America, right? The, the, the immigration system has different criteria. People come here through visas. People come here through education. People come here through work. People come here through different means. Sometimes some people come here illegally, right? Sometimes people come here through the refugee pathway. All of those different modalities has its own consequences Risk and a all depends on a lot of tenacity around endurance, perseverance. And if you can endure all of those processes and make it here, then there's different attributes and characteristics that shapes those individuals that go through the process to end up moving to a different place. So that's a really, really important thing to 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 keep in mind as you think through this. And then more importantly, the different categories and methodology that people actually end up here determines the type of risk that, that they have, right? For example, those who come here through the refugee pathway, that is even more and more and more and more. This is such a small group in a small number. Right now, there's over 85 million refugees worldwide, and less than 5% of those refugees will ever get a chance to move to a Western country. So those refugees, the courage and strength that they have to make it out of their home country, become refugees somewhere, or even a refugee camp for whatever many years, today the average amount of time people stay in a refugee camp is anywhere between 17 to 25 years, right? So just think about that real quick, right? 17 to 25 years, you're living in a refugee camp because where you came from, things are so bad, and you hope that one day you're going to move to a different place. Some people, they end up giving up, right? You're in a refugee camp, you're like, all right, this is enough. I can't, I got to figure out something, right? And the craziest number is the fact that only less than 5% of those folks are ever going to get a chance to move to a Western country, right? So if those individuals are selected and they end up moving to a different country, let's say they end up moving to America, right? Those individuals, are they are outliers. The amount of grit, perseverance, endurance that they've had to go through in order to end up being selected and moving to a different place, th that is that is outlier. I mean, that's like, that's, they are outliers. Like, you cannot compare that individual to someone else because their experience is, is completely different, right? So that person comes here, you know, the pathway for success to them, it's relevant based on what they want success to be. Some are just looking to survive. The fact that they have a second chance of life, that their life is not on a line anymore. And, you know, they work and they try to figure out how they're going to provide for their families. And sometimes the legacy is passed on to their families in order for them to 
make those breakthroughs in life, right? Through education or getting a job or whatever it is, right? But when you break down the characteristic and attributes of those less than 5% that end up getting selected to move to America as a refugee, you can't compare that individual experiences to someone else who's been here their whole entire life and they're marginalized and they're underserved and other factors that are impacting them, you know, and those factors could be caused by them. It could be caused by the system. It can be caused by so many different things, but you can't compare that because there's, there's two different experiences. And then some people have the means, right? So they might, figure out what the immigration process is. They hire a good lawyer in their home country and they go through all the paperwork. You know, they have to go through, it takes a very long time before they get the visa and all, everything. And then they end up moving here and they got to find different ways to stay here. Either they have enough income to work through and pay and get the right paperwork in order for them to stay here. Or they got certain skill sets that are in demand. So they get a job that they get sponsored by or some take the risk to say, hey, I'm going to go there illegally and hopefully I'll, I'll find a way to survive and create a different trajectory for myself or for my family. Like So, so those individuals, that's a small percentage. Like That is a small percentage of folks. And those folks are outliers. Like They are the exception. They're there's an exception to those individuals, regardless if they came here based on their own resources or they came here by different pathways. That whole idea of starting fresh, starting new in a different environment, like the commitment that it takes to do that, like that's not just your typical people. Like that, that's a big move, right? So when people start making their comparison, a lot of times those comparisons are being made with folks that are also that came here and had to endure some hardship. And those hardship, they've been able to excel in order to then live a better life. And people see the end result of what they've been able to accomplish. And that's what people grab onto. They say, oh, you see, you know, they came here, they worked hard, they worked a couple of jobs, they put themselves through college or through whatever education thing. They started working, they, they started businesses. Now they have multiple businesses and look at how everything that we've done. But then you have people here that are on welfare or whatever other categories when you want to name it, right? You say, oh, they've been here and just complaining and whining and they can get off their butt and do this. You cannot make that comparison because those folks that have come here from other countries, they are the outliers. They are the exception. They, they have endured so much to persevere through so many different things. And based on what they've persevered on has created a different trajectory for them and how they leverage the resources that are here in order for them to move forward, right? So I, ju I just wanted to highlight that. And I wanted to talk about my personal experience real quick. So when I was involved with this organization that I mentioned earlier, when I used to travel all over different places to tell my story through performing art, the organization that I was involved with, I was usually the only black person. But some of the community that we serve were predominantly Hispanic or African-American or Haitian or just different. Like it was definitely people of color communities that we would go and serve. 
and early on, I, w- I was asked to, to tell my story and, w- and, and to tell my story of hope and how my family overcame all this hardship and we made it out. And, and when I told my story early on, I used to make a lot of comparison, like direct comparison. I would say, uh, you know, I lived in a life where I used to hear gunshots a lot after the Civil War broke out and the new government arrived where I was living and all of that. But here, you know, you might only hear a gunshot once in a while, right? Where there's other places where people are hearing gunshot all the time and people are dying. People might, you know, there's all this stuff. People might not have running water. People might not have electricity. People might not have like a food pantry to go through. Where here, where you are, you know, you can access, if you wanted drinking water, you can access clean drinking water somewhere. You can go and find a bubbler somewhere or a a water fountain. Or you can go a couple of blocks and there might be a food pantry or might be a church that's giving out clothes, right? Like, I used to make a lot of those comparisons directly. And yes, one is more severe than other, but it still didn't take away from the people's experiences. Their own experiences was based on what they know. They didn't live in a different country where things were torn for them to say, oh, okay, I can compare that and say, oh, yeah, I'm in a better spot here. And I realized I missed the opportunity to meet people where they were in order to better understand where what they were going through in order to make that connection that was more relevant to them. Yes, a lot of times when I was presenting, people would come up to me after and they would say, wow, your story moved me. You know, I realized that I thought I was going through the worst and I heard your story and it brought hope to me. Thank you for sharing. I would hear that all the time. But what I realized is that that comparison that I used to make back then that was more deliberate wasn't really the right comparison and later on by the time I got to college you know I started to to think very very much or so differently and I would also say that like that was also heavily influenced by the white folks that were around me that were leading this organization that thought that hey you know like your your story of redemption is like it's incredible if you tell your story it might provide a different perspective to some of the community that we're serving so they can see that, you know, things might not be as bad for them and for them to not give up. But I think there should have been a little bit more coaching if they had that lens to understand that those direct comparison was probably not the best way for me to present in order to get my point. Because I was young. I I started doing the program when I was 11 and a half years old. So from 11 all the way until I was in college, I was involved with this organization at different different aspect of it. So, and I also wanted to go back to the superintendent's story. The comparison between saying I am African-American from America because I've been here longer than I've been in Africa versus being a Congolese African Sometimes that comparison creates a lot of friction because it sometimes tries to differentiate people from the experiences that they're facing now, right? So something like one of the things is I, I get outreached a lot to do like, you know, it might be African-American uh, history or Martin Luther King or um, Juneteenth, a lot of diff- there's different holidays that are here that are more focusing on African-American experiences that are here. And people always say, well, you're originally from Africa. Do you understand? Would he understand the experiences of black Americans here? And I'm like, I've lived in America for 
very long time and I've spent a lot of time working with so many different groups and I've experienced, I have my own experience as a black skin person in America. And when I refer to the history of African American that have made a big impact, I am a history major. I majored in history and in political science. And so that's, I actually study that and I have my own admiration and gratitude around the legacies of these heroes, what they put in place that has allowed me to rip the benefit of all of all of the craziness that were caused against African Americans in this country. But I will never ever pretend that my genealogy and the make of who I am psychologically is the same within the root of the impact that African Americans that have traditional lineage here, it's not the same. I came from the Congo with a completely different background and different experiences. And I will never ever pretend that I understand 100% what the internal psychological impact that African Americans that have their lineage here have encountered and have experienced. My connections and experience is relevant to the last 22 years of living in America as a black skin person is also influenced by the communities that I've collaborated and worked with all over the country that were led by African Americans. And that's where it come from. So when people ask me, how do you identify yourself? I say, I identify myself as both. Because some of the same narrative, external point of views that people might have about me, which might impact how they treat me, sometimes, unfortunately, is based on the image. It's based on the features. Or even how I speak, right? Some people might not hear an accent, so automatically they're like, oh, here we go, you're this. You're that. this type of person. You're this type of person of an, a black person. Or they might see how I dress, right? If I'm wearing a suit and doing this, and it might be different versus if I'm wearing jeans and boots and a hat, right? But one of the things that I want to be grounded on is the truth. And we all have our own truth. And that truth comes from our experiences and how we see the world through what we've experienced. And the alignment of that truth is when you're on the receiving end, you create the space to meet people where they are so they can be able to tell their stories and hopefully it diffuses the negative perspective that you might have on who they are based on their external image. Because our own truth should create the space where there's an alignment. And unfortunately, people want to bypass the negative impact that people have had regarding certain treatments that they've had, right? 
because some of those negative impacts have been passed on for generation over generation. And it also influences how people see the world, their world, and how they show up and what they think is possible for them. Our judgment of comparison will never get us to a point where we can treat others based on the positive impact or the positive intention that we want to have in how we see others and how we show up for others. So when I reflect on my identity, my identity is a combination of my experiences, who I am, what has shaped me, as a person. I'm going to go back to the story when I was consulting that organization and the African-American members were asked, how do they celebrate Black History Month? When we come alongside one another, it's important to give up the power that drives our, our assumption of others, even when those assumptions are positive, and definitely when those assumptions are negative. Because when you come alongside, it's an opportunity for you to be educated about what the other person experiences is, and then more important, how do you co-create experiences that reflects who they are within the ecosystem that you all share. Because if you only have the power to decide what the experiences of others should be based on your access or your influence, then you're always going to miss the mark, even when you're well-intentioned. Just like how that organization was saying, well, we always did something for African American Month, and here's what we thought we can do without coming alongside the African-American employees and saying, hey, how do you celebrate African-American month? What does it mean for you? We all have an opportunity to learn from each other. It's important to know that each person has their own experience. And that experience shapes who they are and how they see and engage with the world around them. And the opportunity comes with how do we come alongside to learn in order to be informed how we show up. So maybe for some, February is a big month for them because of what it represents in terms of their lineage and their history. Maybe for some, February doesn't mean anything because their February is every day. I encourage you that we can't pin each other against one another in order to make sense to the perspective and point of views that we have on others. You can only make sense in a perspective and point of view that you have for yourself because you are you and you know yourself. But when it comes to the external, especially when it has nothing to do with you, you got to come alongside people to get to know them and understand who they are in order to co-create an environment and a space and experience that's truly 
inclusive, and equitable. I thank you so much for joining today and listening to the Persevere to Excel podcast. Enjoy the rest of your day. Go get it. And make sure you, sus- you subscribe to our podcast, Deo Muano, Persevere to Excel on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, and also SoundCloud. Thank you. <laughs>